seated. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 4. Judges, chapter 4. All of the judges that we have seen thus far, in all of their stories, we have seen that the salvation and deliverance of our God is indeed amazing. From Othniel to Ehud to Shamgar, God saves in strange ways, God saves in miraculous ways, God saves in messy ways. God's salvation is great, and the judge that we will see this morning is absolutely no different, showing forth the greatness of God's salvation. Now, before us this morning, we have a daunting task because chapter 4 and chapter 5 are one literary unit. I believe they should be taught together. Now, that's a lot of text to get through, so we are not going to be able to dive as deeply as we normally would, but I I pray, I, I think and I pray that as we see the overview of how these two chapters fit together, I think it will, do, it will serve us better than if we were just to take chapter 4 this week and chapter 5 next week. We need both of them together because really they're two different perspectives of the same event. Chapter 4 is prose. Chapter 5 is poetry. Chapter 4 is from man's perspective. God is seen very rarely in those verses. And chapter 5 is a theological perspective of God's sovereignty behind every action that happens in chapter 4. So we're going to take both of those together, a beautiful account of Deborah, Barak, Jael, and Sisera. And every storyteller has a very distinct way of telling their stories. Some use flowery language. Some, um, I don't know if you have storytellers in your life where as they're telling you a story, they mention a name and then they stop on that name and they have to give you background of how that person's related to somebody that you know, related to somebody else that you know. And it ends up taking what could have taken two minutes and 20 seconds, ends up taking about an hour's worth of time because they tell the story and it just gets longer and longer and longer. The story in chapter four is told the exact opposite way. Very little detail. We don't have much background. We don't really know who Deborah is. There's no detailed description of her. There's no background whatsoever on uh, who Barak is. This is a very simple story with profound profound implications for our lives. So let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time and we will dive in together. Father, we come before you and we are needy people. We are in need of your spirit to open our eyes. Our our brains and our physical eyes can see much from these verses. But if your spirit does not open the eyes of our hearts to see and to illuminate our understanding of who God is in these verses, then we will walk away just puffed up, accumulating greater knowledge for ourselves, but no real life change. And that is the exact opposite of what we want. We want to walk away humbled. We want to walk away broken. We want to walk away seeing our need for a deliverer and glorying in our deliverer. And we want to walk away trusting, loving, and savoring your sovereign hand in all things. So Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law this morning for the glory of God and for the good of our own hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This, uh, these two chapters are split up into three main sections. There are two main acts, and then there's an encore. The encore is all chapter 5, and it's a big song 
Chapter 4 is split up into two parts. So we're going to take this in three sections. Section 1 is Deborah and Barak, which is chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Section 2 is Jael and Sisera, which is chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And chapter 5 will have its own section, which is God's sovereign hand behind every action that happens. So we've got Deborah and Barak, Jael and Sisera, and God's sovereign hand in all of chapter 5. We pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 4 with Deborah and Barak, the story of Deborah and Barak, point number one. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, they did evil. We know this is idolatry, and it is done again. This already gives us profound implications into what sin is in our lives. There's a certain monotony to sin. It's difficult to be creative in sin. It's all been done before. It's just trying to find fresh ways of doing the exact same thing. Sin is not the fast lane all the time. Sometimes it's slow, it's predictable, it's wearisome, it's a rut. You just get stuck and you can't find a way out. And you fall again and again and again into sin. The Puritans, because of their understanding of how evil and wicked sin was, they wanted to see it as such And in a book called Rediscovering Holiness by J.I. Packer, uh, talking about how the Puritans saw holiness, he said this, quote, The Puritans saw sin as an inner force, devious and wily, tyrannizing the unconverted and tormenting the saints. They saw sin as a perverted energy within people that enslaves them to God-defying, self-gratifying behavior, and by distraction, deceit, and direct opposition— weakens and overthrows their purposes of righteousness. They perceive sin as the moral equivalent of a wolf in sheep's clothing, presenting itself to us again and again and again as good, desirable, a necessity of life, thereby corrupting our conscience so that we lose the sense of its guiltiness and we cherish sin as if it were a friend rather than an enemy. We've encountered terrible enemies in the book of Judges, wicked enemies. But the greatest enemy that we've encountered in the book of Judges thus far is not Sisera, it's not Eglon. The greatest enemy that we have is sin. There is no enemy so vicious, so deadly, so dangerous, and so oppressive. And these people in Judges chapter 4 are stuck in sin yet again. And I just would plead with your heart, where are you stuck in a cycle of sin? Realize today the words of Proverbs 8.36 are clear and they, they ring out over our hearts. He who sins against God injures himself. If you sin against God, you are doing so to your own demise, to your own detriment. When we sin, we fall into these patterns of destruction. They are self-destroying. There is hope, though. As we've seen, the five-fold cycle, right? We have five steps in this cycle. We have sin given to servitude, supplication. God hears the supplication of his people, and he brings salvation. And then there's a period of silence. The Israelites sin. They will cry out. But I, before we dive into that, I just want to plead with our hearts, cry out now. If you're stuck in sin, cry out at this very moment. God loves to deliver and he will deliver you. And if you are here this morning and you do see sin as, bull, as dull, as boring, as very unsatisfying, you hate going back to it over and over and over and over again, that's because 
the gospel has changed your appetites. That's an evidence of grace in your life. So if you see sin as something that you do not want to live in anymore, that's God's grace in your life. Cry out to him to be able to break free from that cycle, to give you a new heart, and to not go back like the Israelites did time and time again. Verse 1, they go back into the pattern of evil, and it says specifically they do this after Ehud died. They were fine when he was alive. But if you take away the external restraint of Ehud being there to say, guys, don't go back into sin. You take him away, and Israel displays her true character. We've said it before. The person who falls does not fall very far. The sin was already going on in their heart. Ehud was just an external restraint. It's like when a student just doesn't really care about their work. They're doing some assignment in their class. They're sitting at their desk, and they're just kind of tuning out, just daydreaming. And then all of a sudden, the teacher gets up and walks over and starts walking through the rows. And, and as they go through the rows, the student goes, oh, I need to get working on my assignment. The external restraint is there. They're, they're watching, and so they start doing the work. But once the teacher's gone, the student says, eh, I don't want to do anything. There's something very wrong when the degree of your faithfulness to God depends solely on outside forces, outside influences, outside pressures. We would only be Christians because of our surroundings rather than a genuine internal work of God in our hearts. So we see, again, this is not genuine repentance. They go back into evil. They go back into their old patterns after Ehud died. That's sin. We're going to see every time our five-fold cycle. That's sin. Secondly, the cycle of servitude. Verse 2, the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. So they are placed into slavery under this oppressive man named Jabin. Now, again, please remember, Jabin would not even be here if Israel had obeyed God and driven him out. The sin that you fail to destroy will eventually destroy you. So Jabin is there oppressing the people. And how does he oppress them? Verse 3, the sons of Israel are going to cry out to the Lord. This is supplication because... He had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. He has 900 iron chariots. This is uh, the strength of his force in, in oppression against the Israelites. The greatest technology of warfare at the time is this iron chariot. He has 900 of them, and this means that he can oppress anybody who is weaker, which is everybody, because nobody's stronger than an iron chariot. There's nothing stronger. This would be like you trying to take on a Ford F-150 that's just driving at your face, and you say, no, no, I can stop you. No, no, you can't. That will just destroy you. And so Jabin has 900 chariots. They're iron chariots, and they are oppressing Israel. And think, to put this in our culture and our context, we don't know what it's like to be oppressed in this way as a nation under some oppressive force. But we have just little slivers of this. I don't know if you guys have been to uh, Mexico before. We've gone to Mexico on missions trips. And as we go down there, we're always told just be very careful and cooperate with the police because the police, there are amazing, great policemen, and then there are dirty cops, right? And the dirty cops, they just want to augment their salary. So they'll pull you over. They'll say, there's something broken in your engine, and it's going to require a ticket. And if you pay me $300, then you can go. They'll just augment their salary by oppressing you, and we have no way to stop it, so we just pay the money and move on. 
That's the exact same thing that's happening here. If you have 900 chariots going around in Israel, and this isn't all of Israel. If you remember, this is a very geographical uh, couple of chapters. Israel is really, when you look at Israel, you just think of like little puddle at the top, little line, big puddle at the bottom, right? You've got Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. This entire account happens at the little puddle up at the top. This is all around the Sea of Galilee. So there are 900 iron chariots in that location. And whatever these people want who are riding in these chariots, they will get. They're oppressing. This is cruel oppression. Severely, the Bible says, verse 3, severely oppresses them for 20 years. And they pray, supplication. They cry out to God for salvation. And God sends Point number four in our fivefold cycle, right? God's going to send salvation. So we see sin, we see servitude, we see supplication, all in three verses. And verse four brings the salvation, Deborah. Deborah is a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, and is judging Israel at that time. She's a judge. She's a wise counselor. She deals with disputes. Nobody knew the Bible back then. She's the only one who's wise enough to say, if you have a problem, this is how to deal with it biblically. She's wise. She's apparently very famous because number five says, verse number five, she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah. So she has her own tree named after her because she's so famous. She knows God's word. She sat between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim and the sons of Israel would come up to her for judgment. They want uh, a judge, an arbiter between them to tell them what to do. She's different. Deborah is different than all of the other judges we've seen and all of the judges that we're going to see, not only because she's a woman, but because she's leading with wisdom and character, not just sheer might. In fact, verse 6, she's not even going to go to battle. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, uh, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded you go. You march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. So she's not going to drive out this army with her might. She's wise. She's sent by God as the prophetess, and she's going to send uh, Barak to go do this work for her. Because she knows the Bible... She knows that God in the Torah had said, women aren't supposed to go into battle. They're not supposed to go to war. Nations are cursed because they send their women into war. They're supposed to be protected and not sent into war. She knows that, so she says, I need somebody to go fight on our behalf. Now, a tiny little tangent, two minutes, not even two minutes. A word about men's and women's roles. Just right off the bat, this has nothing to say about them, okay? That's why this is going to be the tiniest little tangent, because this has nothing to say about roles of men and women. Clearly, the Bible as a whole says that men and women are equal in worth, honor, value, dignity, etc. Every single passage in the Bible says men and women are equal in worth, honor, value, dignity. And clearly, the Bible also says that men and women are different in many ways as well. So the traditionalists coming to this text would read into this text that men weren't leading. And since men weren't leading, Deborah had to be raised up by God because the men were failing in their leadership. They were cowards. So Deborah has to step in. But the chapter never explicitly says that. It never explicitly says that. The more liberal view of this would say, oh, uh, Deborah is a woman, she's leading 
uh, women can be involved in every form of leadership, we're done. This is perfect. But that view is also challenged because Deborah's not a warrior. She refuses to go fight. She says, I need somebody else to do this for me. She has to get a warrior who will fight for her. So both sides of this debate are equally challenged in this text. This text teaches us a valuable lesson. It is always, always, underline always, unwise to draw firm doctrine from vague inferences. Don't ever draw firm doctrine from vague inferences in the Bible. There are some inferences in these chapters, but there's nothing explicit in these chapters. There's a lot explicit elsewhere in the Bible about men's and women's roles. For instance, in the Old Testament, Israel had three main offices, prophet, priest, and king, or judge, or deliverer, or ruler. Women in the Old Testament, like Deborah, were prophets. Women in the Old Testament, like Deborah, were deliverers or rulers. But you never see a woman as a priest in the Old Testament. And that was explicitly commanded by God, no, that's not a role for women. And we see this in the New Testament as well. Women are deacons in the New Testament. Women are prophets like Anna in the New Testament. There's prophetesses in the New Testament. But there's no women pastors or priests, the equivalent in the New Testament to the Old Testament priest. So men and women in the Bible are clearly equal and clearly not equivalent. They're clearly equal and they're clearly not equivalent. We need each other to work together, to have complementing roles and responsibilities, being able to do a whole host of the same things together. But the good news is, tangent over, this text has nothing to say about this. It's not a story about complementarianism. It's not a story about egalitarianism. It's not a story about men's and women's roles. So we get to move on, because it's simply just a story about the uniqueness of God's salvation in a period in time in history. So she says to Barak, please, you need to go. God has said this in verse 7. I'm going to draw out. God has said, I'm going to draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Now, Barak says something to her. Verse 8, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, there's two ways to read this, and you can kind of hear both of them, right? One is this wimpy, Barak's a wimp, and he's really scared and nervous, and I don't want to go by myself. Will you please go with me? And many people read it that way. I don't see it that way. I don't think that this is some pessimistic, uh, wimpy guy. Ah, I can't do this on my own. I need help. Barak knows that Deborah speaks on behalf of God. So Barak says, I am not going unless God goes with me. And since you are God's representative in our country right now, you come with us and God will be with us. If you don't come with us, God isn't with us. And if God isn't with us, I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to be where God is. I don't think that this is Barak being wimpy at all. I think this is him having faith. I think this is why he's going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 in that hall of fame of faith when he says, I believe that God's promises are true and I want to go where he's going. I want him to be with me where I'm going. And verse 9, she's going to say to him, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. So, Barak, if you come, come with us, if you do this, you're not going to get any of the glory. And he doesn't back out then. He doesn't say, fine, I'm out. I want the glory. I want my name to be known in all of Israel. No, he says, that's fine. 
I don't need the glory. He's fine not getting the honor. This is humble faith. I just want God to go with us, and I trust in God's promises, and let him get the glory. Let somebody else get the glory. I don't need the glory. I don't need the glory. Verse 9, who's the glory going to go to? Deborah says it's going to go to a woman, the hands of a woman. That's not Deborah. That's Jael. It's going to go into the hands of Jael. Jael is going to be the one who ends up killing Sisera. Now, this is something that would have been humiliating back then for a warrior to be killed by the hands of a woman. Frankly, I think a warrior being killed at all is humiliating. You've, you have failed. You've lost. So it doesn't really matter if it's a man or a woman. But time and time again in the book of Judges, we're going to see this, where being killed by a woman was so humiliating, and that's the way that God ends up doing it. In chapter 9, we're going to be this woman. This, it's an amazing passage. I feel like everybody in our church is moving currently. We're all moving somewhere. Everybody's moved from someplace or is about to move someplace. And there's a story in chapter 9 of Judges where a man says to his wife, hey, we're moving. And she says, okay, hang on, let me get my millstone because apparently you need a millstone to go with you. The, women just don't pack light. I guess they haven't ever packed light. So they take the, the millstone. They go to a tower. They have to climb a cliff and go to a tower. And then she drops the millstone onto Abimelech's head and kills him. And that scene by Abimelech is something that's so embarrassing that as his skull is fractured and he's dying, he cries out to his uh, general in command and says, please kill me so that it will not be recorded that I was killed by a woman. So... When Deborah says, you're going to be, sister's going to be delivered in the hands of a woman, that is saying that the source of salvation is going to come from something that seemingly is weak. Women aren't weak, but this is, in that context, this would have been seen as humiliating, as weakness. Why? So that Yahweh gets the glory. This is a prophecy about how Sisera is going to die so that when we see Sisera die at the end of this chapter, we know, oh, that was God. That had to have been God. God called this. And it happened the exact same way that he said it would. God always uses these human means to accomplish it, but he does it in such a way that the instruments reveal rather than obscure that Yahweh alone is the giver of salvation. So, Deborah says, fine, you, you can go and I will go with you, but the victory is going to go to a woman. I think that this verse, I think Judges chapter 4 verse 9, should be our life verse. I think this should be our life verse. The road on which we are going doesn't turn out for our glory. It's not for our glory. God alone gets the glory. Barak is okay with that. My question is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with no one ever applauding you except for God and God alone as you are faithful in obedience and serving him? Barak's okay with it. Deborah arises with Barak to go to Kadesh, and verse 10, Barak called to Zebulun, and Naphtali brings them together to Kadesh. About 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went with him. So they get the army. Deborah says, I'm going with you. Barak says, awesome, we're going together. God's with us. God's on our side. 10,000 men, let's go fight. We trust the promises of God. Now, before we get to the story of Jael and Sisera, something totally crazy happens that just has no point being here. And it's verse 11. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanim, which is near Kadesh. Verse 11 has 
Nothing to do with anything. Because verse 12, then they told Sisera that Barak has this army and they're coming out with 10,000 men. What is verse 11 for? Who cares about verse 11? This is some unknown metal worker. He's packing up and he's moving. This is God saying, I just, I picture, for some reason, I picture every story in the Bible in, in a movie format. So I picture, uh, you know, the, the camera zooming in on Barak's face as he yells out to all of his men, we're going to take the day for the Lord. And it kind of zooms over to Sisera and he says, we have to prepare our men and get ready to fight. And then just like a little pan flute with like a guy and a backpack, just kind of walking like, come on, honey, we got to move. And then back over to the fight. Like what, what is the point of this guy being here? We're not told why he moves. We're not told how he plays anything into the battle, and he doesn't. Maybe as the battle's going and arrows are flying, he's just, come on, keep your head down, honey, come on. And just over, just who is this guy? This is so pointless. But in the Bible, everything has a purpose. And this is an incredibly important detail. Because as this man moves, he's going to plant his uh, tent his home. He's going to move his home somewhere in the north. This is basically like moving from um, San Diego up to LA. So it's just kind of moving up north. And his house is going to be the house where Sisera hides. That's why he's important. He says, honey, I hate living here. Let's move. She goes, okay, let's move. And they move. And he says, I think this place over here looks like a good place. Okay, let's go. And not even this man's U-Haul truck is outside of the plan of God's sovereign control. There's providence in verse 11. There's providence in Heber's U-Haul. This reminds me of an amazing passage. Uh, turn over to Genesis just really quickly. Genesis chapter 37. I love this passage. Genesis 37. And there's passages like Judges 4.11. There's passages like Genesis 37 all in the Bible. This is the story of Joseph, verse 12, Genesis 37, verse 12. Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, go uh, to where your flocks are, to where your brothers are in Shechem. I'm going to send you to them. And he says, okay, I'm going to go. And he said to him, go and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. So he goes, Joseph says, I'm going to find my brothers. Now, you know what's going to happen when he finds his brothers, right? What's going to happen? It's going to be sold into slavery. It's going to be put into the pit. They're going to talk about killing him. Then they're going to sell him into slavery, which God is going to use as he goes under the charge of Potiphar, as he goes to prison, as he goes to the right hand of Pharaoh. God's got a plan for Joseph. And in our hypothetical physical vision, if Joseph were to go to Shechem, he's going to find out that his brothers aren't there. And he goes, you know what? They're not here. I kind of hate them anyway, so let's just go home. If you were to go home none of this would have happened. None of the rest of this story would have happened. So he goes to Shechem. In verse 15, a man, he's not even named, finds Joseph, sees Joseph wandering around in Shechem, looking, where, where are my brothers? I don't know where they are. And the man initiates the conversation with Joseph to say, hey, what are you, what are you looking for? You look lost. And he said, I'm looking for my brothers, verse 16. Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've moved from here, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. This man hadn't been there, Joseph would have packed up and gone home. If this man hadn't initiated the conversation, hey, you look lost, buddy, can I help you? You never know how God's going to use 
human instruments to bring about his divine sovereign plan. He uses Heber the Kenite in Judges 4 with a U-Haul behind him and a wife who is apparently really good at driving stakes into the ground. God is involved in every minutia of our life. He is. The most mundane thing that you can think of happening in your life right now, God's involved in it. And a God who is involved in those things is a God who is worthy of our adoration and our praise and our trust. So, back to our regularly scheduled program. Verse 12, Sisera hears that Barak, and the, son of, Barak the son of Abinoam goes up to the Mount of Tabor. Sisera calls together his chariots, 900 chariots, and all the people who are with him. Deborah says to Barak, Arise, this day is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak says, Fine, God's with me. I trust God. He goes out with 10,000 men. The Lord, verse 15, routs Sisera and all of his chariots and his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, that's not the way you work a chariot. You don't ride in the chariot and think, you know what, I really need to get away fast. And running is faster than a chariot. Why is he getting out of his chariot? Chapter 5, verse 20 and verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4 and verse 20 will tell us that a huge thunderstorm came and God poured rain down on the battlefield and flooded the whole place so that the chariots got stuck in the muck and mire of the mud. They're sitting ducks. These chariots don't have four-wheel drive, and so they're stuck, and they just start getting out and running, and everybody's being slaughtered, and Cicero says, I need to leave, and he runs. But Barak, verse 16, pursued the chariots and the army, and he goes all the way uh, after all these people are killed. Not even one of them is left over. So every single person of Cicero's army is killed. Cicero flees. Barak pursues. And that ends point number one, Deborah and Barak. We see a beautiful act number one, and it moves us into act number two, which is Jael and Sisera. So we have act number one is Deborah and Barak. Act number two is Jael and Sisera. Chapter four, chapter four, verse 17. Now, this is point number two. Sisera flees on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Hey, we're back to the U-Haul guy. Heber the Kenite shows up again. And this is apparently a man who had some form of a peace treaty between Jabin, the king of Hatsor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. So they know, Heber and Jael know Jabin some way so that Sisera says, oh, I know these guys. Why are they here? They, they moved from where they normally live. Now they're here. Oh, whatever. I can hide here. Jael is the only one there. Where is Heber? Heber's not at home. And I know exactly where Heber is, and you know exactly where Heber is too. Because if you have moved ever in your life, you move to where you, you are, your new home is, you start unpacking the boxes, and you realize, I don't have the tools or the equipment necessary. I need a Home Depot run. So Heber is at Home Depot getting everything that he needs to get in order for Jail to be happy when he gets back home and hang the paintings, hang the pictures, do everything that needs to be done. This is exactly what happens when you move. So Hebrews at Home Depot, Jael is home alone, getting the house ready, tidying up, un unpacking boxes. And as she unpacks boxes, she unpacks the hammer and the tent peg. She starts making the tent straighten and making sure it's all nailed down. And then she sees Jael, verse, or she sees Sisera, verse 18. Jael went to meet Sisera and said to him, 
Hey, turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. Come, come in here. She initiates with him. And he turns aside and goes into the tent. And she covers him with a rug. Here, just be warm. You've had a long day. He says, verse 19, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. And what does she give him? Milk. He says, I just could use a glass of water. And she says, I've got something better. Maybe it's a little fermented. Maybe there's some herbs to help Sisera sleep. This is some milky nightcap that she gives to Sisera. She opens a bottle of milk, gives it to him to drink. She covers him. And I just picture him weary from a day of battle and from a day of running in the mud, just kind of pulling the rug over and half asleep, says, please stand in the doorway, verse 20. And if anyone comes and inquires of you, just say, no one's here. If anybody asks, is there anybody here? Just say, no one's here. No, no one's here. Let me sleep in peace. But Jael, Hebrew's wife, took a tent peg, seized a hammer in her hand, and went secretly to him, quietly to him, and drove the peg into his temple. And it went through into the ground because he was sound asleep and exhausted. And then most unnecessarily, so he died. <laughs> well, of course he died. The temple. Unlike most stories in the Old Testament, this is not a place of Israelite worship. This is the flat region on either side of your forehead. This is the kind of temple that Jael is going to drive a, a tent peg through. This is, this is the true temple of doom. This is where Jael is going to drive her message home. This is where she's going to hammer home the details. She says to Sisera, can I pick your brain about something, and drives the tent peg home. Bedouin women were in charge of setting up the tent. They were in charge of this. So as Heber goes away to Home Depot, he says, hey, just make sure the tent's ready to go when I get back. She's qualified to do this. She's probably pounded through a couple rocks in her day to try and get the tent peg to go down into the ground. And so she provides us with a beautiful view of a smashing salvation, as I've titled this message, and Sisera with an absolute pounding headache. So she kills him. She, she kills him. And Barak, verse 22, we have to finish out the story here. Barak pursued Sisera. He's running after Sisera. I'm going to get him. You know, I just picture first mile and a half, Barak's running with his sword. I'm going to get him. And then put that away or put it on your back. This, why am I holding this? I've got to run after him. So he just runs as fast as he can. And he goes to Jael's tent. Jael comes out to meet him. So she came out to meet Sisera. She comes out to meet Barak. And she said to him, come, I'm going to show you where the guy is. The guy that you're seeking. I just, again, I picture in my mind, Barak running, just, <sighs> she says, hey, come on in, come on in. Just on his, <sighs> hang on one second. And then, okay, hang on. Get behind me, Jail. You have a very wicked man and I think he's here. Yeah, no, he's in here. Okay, shh, don't say anything. Get behind me. And she, no, no, come, come here. No, stop. He's very evil. He'll kill you. And, and she's like, he's right there and opens the tent and Oh, he's already dead. <laughs> you already did my job for me. He entered with her, and behold, Cicero is lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So God subdued 
on that day, Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel, the hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed him. God wins the day. Now, my question is, we, we kind of wrestled with this last week with Eglon and Ehud, but my question is, what do you think of this? What do you think of Jael driving a tent peg through Sisera's head? Some people think that they have to apologize for God. This is a terrible oath. I don't want this in my Bible. There's some people that say, I don't like this God. This is not the God I serve. And those people don't serve the one true God because this is absolutely the God that you serve. And if this is not the one true God that you are serving, then you're serving an idol, and we all have seen where idolatry leads. So the question is, what is God teaching us? Some have a problem with this because it's graphic, it's grotesque. And it is. This is incredibly graphic. Some people tell me, oh, I don't like reading the Bible because the Bible is boring. You must have never read this part of the Bible. This is not boring. Some people have such a problem with it, they allegorize it, similarly to what they do with Ehud. Well, it's not really a hammer, it's the Word of God, because Jeremiah 23, 29 says the Word of God is a hammer, so let's take that and put it back there. It's just the Word of God. She's preaching to Sisera. No, that's not what's happening. Some people say, man, if only she had a WWJD bracelet on, she would have picked up that hammer and gone, what would Jesus do? Oh, no, I can't do this. And they think of Jesus meek and mild, lowly. And they forget Revelation 19 Jesus who is coming back with a robe dipped in blood with a sword that is brandished to vanquish his enemies. Now, I don't think that this passage is, has any prescription for us. We talked about that this morning. Some passages in the Bible are prescriptions, go and do likewise. Some passages are descriptions. The majority of the Bible is just descriptions. It's not go and do this. So this is not telling us, go find somebody, give them more milk, and drive a tent peg through their head. That's not what this is saying. It's a description. There are many passages, the majority of the Bible is like this. The Bible reports that David had many wives, Solomon had many wives, a lot of people had many wives. That's just a description. It's not a prescription, go and do likewise. But here's just a thought from Judges chapter 5, verse 24, which we are going to read in just a second. There seems to be on Deborah's part, who is a woman of God and a prophetess, there seems to be a commendation of what J.L. did. Not that, uh, that really wasn't the best thing to do, J.L., but okay, we'll let it slide. No, there is praise for what she did. Why? Because Sisera had severely oppressed Israel through Jabin. As we're going to see, he's a murderer, he's a rapist, he is a thief. And he had placed all of his energy into fighting against God's holiness and God's glory. God is committed beyond all other commitments to his glory and his holiness. God's deepest care and concern is for his holiness to be seen and savored in the world, and those who are not will be destroyed. The greatest sin that we have ever done is not to join God in this commitment, to say, I want glory for myself. That's why verse 9 of chapter 4 should be our life verse. I don't need the glory. Let it go to somebody else. So I, I'm, I don't have a problem with what J.L. did. Number one, because I think it's commended in the Bible in chapter 5. And number two, because this is God's vengeance being played out against his enemies through one of his people. So we have Deborah and Barak, we have J.L. and Sisera, and now we have the encore. 
This is the encore. This is all of chapter 5. And you can see, even in your Bibles, it changes the format. It went from just narrative prose to poetry. It's a song. It's broken up into lines. It's a song. It's a victory celebration. Chapter 5 is a different perspective on this account. In chapter 4, God is only mentioned in four verses, and three of those four verses are Deborah talking about God. So God is rarely seen, quote-unquote, in chapter 4. It's just human events happening. And chapter 5 gives us the background of God's hand inside of every single event that was taking place. Every single event, God had his hand in it. So this is a theological perspective on a very physical, man-made human event. We need that, right? We need that in our lives. We need to see our human events through the lens of God's sovereignty and his control. He's everywhere. And because of his sovereign hand, Deborah is made to sing. Deborah is going to sing about the events that we just read about. We just go, oh, that's kind of gross and yucky. Deborah is going to sing a song. She's going to praise God. So let's just work through it quickly. Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless the Lord. People volunteered to help. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers, I to the Lord, I will sing, I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked, the heavens dripped. It rained because of you, God, and if it hadn't have rained, we would have been slaughtered, but you made it rain. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord, this Sinai, at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. You're holy, you're in Sinai, you're holy. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and travelers went by roundabout ways. The times were so bad, Deborah is saying, that people couldn't even drive on the roads. We just have to stay home, lock our doors. We can't even go out. They were so oppressed. They had to take side streets. They couldn't travel in safety. So therefore, verse 7, the peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel. Family systems ceased in Israel. You couldn't go hang out with your family members at other houses. You had to just stay in your own family. Fearful, oppressed. And then Deborah, the mother of Israel, rises up and tells them that God will win the day. New gods were chosen, verse 8. Then war was in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen. Among 40,000 in Israel, 40,000 people thought, there's no way we can win. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people. Bless the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, you who travel on the road, sing. At the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places, they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord. So what he did was righteous, the righteous deeds for his peasantry in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, sing the song. Arise, Barak, take away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then survivors came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came down to me as warriors from Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek. Come down, following you, Benjamin, with your people. These are the people that are going to come down to fight. Verse 15, the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, and Issachar was, and was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valleys they rushed at his heels. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. So she is going through every tribe saying, you helped, you helped, you helped, and then... End of verse 15, she's going to start calling out some tribes here. Reuben, where were you? Oh, you had great resolve. You thought about it. But, but why did you sit among the sheepfolds? You heard the piping for the flocks. You stayed home. Reuben wanted to go, but we have sheep we have to take care of. Among the divisions of Reuben, there was great searchings of heart, 
but they didn't actually go. Verse 17, Gilead remained across the Jordan. And why did Dan stay in ships? Dan wanted to go too, but they go, nah, we got ships we got to take care of, and marauding pirates are going to come take our ships, so we can't go. We have to stay here. Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. No, we can't go. We can't go. Zebulun was a people who was despised. They despised even their own lives to death. They said, we're fine. We'll lose our life if necessary to gain the country. Naphtali also on the high places of the field. What Deborah is doing is calling out tribes that weren't there and saying, look at the people who came, who followed the promises of God, who banked their eternal destiny on their promises. They trusted in God. You chose to save your life and you forfeited this victory. They chose to lose their life and they gained it. What Deborah is doing is not just instructing Israel here. I think that she's instructing the church. I think inside of these questions, we see the theology that God brings about deliverance. Yes, but he brings about deliverance through his people acting out what he has promised. And we're cursed if we don't jump in and participate in his working. So will you, are you willing to step out in faith and do what God says, trusting that he's going to win the day? This is all an issue of faith. Drop down to verse 19. The kings come and fight. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder and silver. The stars fought from heaven and from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. This is God bringing the rains and the flood, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. And by the way, if Sisera had known that there was going to be a flood, a rain, a thunderstorm that was going to cause a flood, he wouldn't have gone out to battle. So clearly this is a time in a dry season when there's not supposed to be any rain. He goes out, not a cloud in the sky, we're fine. And God says, nope, hurricane. I'm going to save my people. Verse 22, the horse's hoofs beat from the dashing, the dashing, the valiant steeds. Curse Miraz, said the angel of the Lord. Utterly curse its inhabitants because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. We don't even know where Miraz is. We don't have to. We know that they are cursed because they did not actively participate in obedience through faith in what God had promised. Now the commendation, most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. She's blessed. He asked for water. She gave him milk. In a magnificent bowl, she brought him curds. She reached out her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the worksman hammer. Then she struck Sisera. She smashed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, he fell dead. Now, just in case we're still wondering, was that okay? I mean, poor Sisera. Listen to what God's description of Sisera is through these verses. Verse 28, out of the window, she, this is the mother of Sisera, lamented, where's my boy? I wonder where my son is. Through the lattice, the mother of Sisera is wondering this. And what does she say? Why does his chariot delay in coming? Why do the hoofbeats of his chariots tarry? Now, thus far, this is a sad story of a mom who's lost her son. But hang on, listen to what the mom is saying. Her wise princesses would answer her. Indeed, she repeats her words to herself, and she says this. They're not here because they're finding and dividing the spoil. They're stealing from the people that they just slaughtered. Oh, that's why they're tearing. Oh, and a maiden, two maidens for every warrior. 
They're stealing the women and sleeping with the women. So they're stealing the goods of the people in their tents, and then they're stealing their women. And to Sisera, a spoil of dyed work, a spoil of dyed work embroidered, dyed work of double embroidery uh, on the neck of the spoiler. That's not something that Sisera is going to enjoy, dyed embroidered work. He's not going, oh, this is beautiful. He's going to bring it home for her. So she's saying, where's my boy? Not because, oh, I miss him, and I hope he comes back, but I want my money. I hope he's happy and satisfied with women, and I want my embroidered clothes that he's going to take back. He's plundered. Verse 31, thus, therefore, everything that's been seen and said, let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years. 40 years after Shamgar, it was 60 years. Now it's 20 years less, and it's going to get worse. Don't have pity on Sisera. He justly deserves his punishment. Don't have pity on his mom. She justly deserves this punishment. The glory in their deliverance is indeed shocking. Some think it's too vicious. I think it's pious, and and I would say along with the commentator, he says this, he he quotes, uh, this is a quote from him that I think is so beautiful and brilliant. We frequently fail to appreciate texts like this because we can't really understand them from our study chairs, from our padded pews, or not-so-padded library chairs, from our recliners beside our cozy fireplaces. Deborah clearly votes for Jael, the servant of the Lord, to be blessed. Naturally, you can disagree, and I love how he says this. If you do disagree, you can claim that you are more refined, but you have less faith. You can claim that you're more, oh, I would never allow that to happen. That's disgusting. But Jael had faith. Deborah had faith. Barak had faith. So, how do we tie all these things together? We've seen Deborah and Barak. We've seen Jael and Sisera. We've seen God's sovereign hand behind every aspect of what was happening. We've seen the cycle again. Sin, uh, servitude, supplication, salvation, and now silence. 40, 40 years of silence. How do we zip it up and go to the Lord's table this morning? Seems like a strange passage before we come to the Lord's table, but I think it's absolutely appropriate. Why? Because there is a song sung about God's deliverance in chapter 5, and this is God's deliverance from a physical oppressor. And if Deborah and Barak have a reason to sing about physical oppression being gone, then you and I, as believers, have reason to sing over a spiritual oppressor being destroyed. When God conquers an evil king, you rejoice, whether it's Eglon, whether it's Sisera, whether it's Jabin, or whether it's the wicked rule of sin in our lives. I don't delight in these verses because it's violent. I delight in these verses because God's enemies are destroyed, and there's a promise inside of that in verse 31 that God's enemies will be destroyed. God's enemies will be destroyed. So the question is, in verse 31, let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. So either you are an enemy who doesn't love God or you are one who does. The question is, do you love Jesus? You will, and you will sing if you know what Jesus has done on your behalf. And if you don't love Jesus currently, if you are currently an enemy, here's the beautiful news. God pursues his enemies. God chases down his enemies. 
so that they can be found and turned into his friends, to sit at the table with him, to commune with him in fellowship. If you are an enemy of God right now, you are exactly the kind of person that God is going to hunt down, pursue with his love, and change your heart if you would cry out to him now and say, God, change my heart. God, change my heart. He invites you this day to be inside of his kingdom. And if you're inside of his kingdom, then you know where your allegiances lie. And you know that you're committed to praising his magnificent deliverance. God can transform your heart fully, committed to his kingdom. God can do that today. And he did that through a violent, grotesque, bloody cross. So I just, I plead with you now, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, today is the day to say, my heart is an enemy of God. I am an enemy of God, and I need God to make me his friend. And he did that by sending Jesus, living a perfect sinless life that you and I need to live to get to God on our own, but we could never live because we've all fallen short of his glory. And then God the Father slaughtered his son on the cross, pouring out our punishment onto Jesus so that we would receive nothing but pardon, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. That's what these elements are going to celebrate. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, and as we sing, we're going to just rehearse the gospel. And these elements will be passed out. Just take them, hold them, we'll take them together. But as we sing, I encourage you, Examine your heart. Are you inside of God's kingdom through Jesus' work, through trusting in his work, or are you outside of the kingdom? These elements are for believers only because only believers can sing and celebrate the work that Jesus did on their behalf. Non-believers don't understand that. So if you do not know today that if you were to die tonight, that you would know with confidence you'd stand before God and be ushered into heaven because of Jesus' work. If you don't know that confidently, just let these elements go by. The Bible says these are for believers. Don't drink judgment upon yourself if you're a non-believer. Let them go by. But please don't let this moment go by. Don't walk out those doors until you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are one who loves Jesus because of his gracious work in your heart. Father, we thank you for your word that is so powerful, so beautiful. And as we gather now to celebrate the Lord's Supper we do so with excitement. Man, if Deborah could sing a song and Barrett could sing a song because of political oppression being removed, we have all the more reason to sing because of spiritual oppression being removed. And so we want to rehearse the gospel now through song, and we want to prepare our hearts to rehearse the gospel through the taking of these elements. God, renew our minds, renew our hearts, renew our spirits so that we would glory in your deliverance. We'd sing just like Deborah and Barrett with joy overflowing because of who you are and because of what you've done. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask the men if they would come and they will pass out the elements, hold them, we will take them together after we sing.